Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see everybody here today. I'm a little surprised because we had so many people here last night. I was thinking this morning would be a little bit smaller. Uh, and we're unplugged today. I'm not uh, preaching by video at the other campuses. Garth is preaching at Crossroads and, and Dan at Highland Park and Siler at the 01. And so, so uh, all the same sermon, but um, I sort of thought I could do something a little bit different. So I'm going into full professor mode today. <laughs> I thought I could get away with it uh, this morning. And, and uh, what I want to do, what my hope is, is to communicate that there is a plan. And this plan, uh, though it is slow and unfolding, uh, clearly demonstrates that God has everything under control. And it may not always feel like it, and it may not feel like it in your life. But uh, I think we, we, when we get the plan, when we see the plan as it is unfolding, there's a sense of confidence that comes with that, and a sense of assurance of God's love, and that this is going to work out, that this is going to play out in good ways. And so... Um, Uh, I want to talk about the Bible, and um, I want to talk about the Bible in the context of this big plan. Many people think of the Bible as a a collection of rules or, you know, sort of religious motivational stories or something, or they don't see the, they don't see the the flow, they don't see the arc. And this is not a small thing, uh, because we're supposed to see the arc. The arc is big and it's important and it, and it changes things. In uh, John chapter 5, Jesus is uh, sort of going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. And at one point, he chastises them. And he says, you read the scriptures. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Um, But (laughs) the scriptures point to me. That's what Jesus says. Now, in the context of the scriptures then, right, in the first century, the time of Christ, the scriptures mean the Old Testament. There's no New Testament at this point. So he's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Covenant. And he says, you study the scriptures, right, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Okay, that's great. But the scriptures, the Old Testament, points to me. And you're missing that. And then uh, later, after his death and resurrection, he's on, famously on the road to Emmaus. And he, he bumps into a couple of his followers. They don't recognize him at first, not entirely certain why not, but they don't recognize him at first, and they're discouraged, they're despondent, and he asks why, and they go, oh my goodness, can't, haven't you heard? Are you the only one that doesn't know, right? There was this guy, and we thought for sure he was the one, and the Romans put him down, and oh, it's all, all hope is lost. And then he says to them, right, you foolish people, right? When are you going to clue in? Uh, you are so slow to believe all that the prophets have written. Did not the Messiah have to suffer this thing and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, okay, which is code for the Bible, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There is a plan. There is this, uh, the, the Old Testament. Once you get it, it's like a big it's got a series of big neon signs pointing to Jesus. And, and once they come into focus, right, it's like moving out of black and white into color. Or when I was uh, re- recovering the early months after my stroke, I had double vision and, and I, I couldn't see depth. And, and so I, I had these challenges and I had these 
two plastic cards that I was supposed to hold up and look cross-eyed through them. And, uh, for hours. I did this for hours and hours and hours. Trying to get my eyes to correct themselves and work together. And it didn't work, and it didn't work, and it didn't work. And I keep going to see this neuro-optometrist. And then all of a sudden one day, it worked. <laughs> and I was like, I can see it, I can see it. It changes everything. Right? Once, once that came back in. And so I want you to have that experience of going, oh my goodness, this whole thing is about Jesus. It is pointing to him. And so the, the, the backdrop for this is this, um, is this series piece. As, as Anson has already noted, we're, we're looking at names or titles for Jesus that correspond with these letters. So Prince of Peace out of Isaiah 9. Uh, Eternal Life is the letter E. Uh, that comes out of 1 John 1. And, and then now it's Alpha and Omega. And Alpha and Omega is a, is a title of Jesus that shows up three times, all in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, 21, and 22. And it means essentially from A to Z, right? Alpha to Omega means Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter. So this is like from Aardvark to Zebra, right? And everything in between. That's, that's the reference here that's being given. Jesus is, is the beginning and the end, and he's everything in between. With the letters of the alphabet, you can form any word, you can form anything. And so there's this big, it's, Big comprehensive statement being made about Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so um, I want you to see this. I want you to see um, how Jesus is the beginning and the end and how he fits into the Old Testament. Because, it, again, it, it gives reassurance of the plan and it, it, it reminds us or it points out to us the lengths God has gone because of his love for us, because of his love for you, the lengths God has gone to rescue and redeem us. Now, in order to understand this, um, we have to understand what the Bible is. And there are, there are different ways that we could talk about this book, different ways we could think about it. Obviously, first of all, we can just say it's a book. Uh, the, the Greek word biblios, is, from which we get our word Bible, is the word book, or it's plural. So this is a, a collection of books. And when I point that out, I always say, look, if, uh, it's not just a book, it's the book. If ever a book was the book, this book is that book, right? So more translations of the Bible, more copies of the Bible than any other book, not a close second. More, more translation languages that this is printed in than any other book, not a close second. More books have been written about this book than have been written about any other book, right? This, but this book is the book. So we could say that it's the book. We could also say that it's the Word of God. That's how it describes itself. Hebrews chapter 4, 2 Timothy 3, 16, it talks about being uh, inspired by God. So it is, it is uh, the Word of God. We could also talk about it being God's special revelation to us. So what we know about God, we know because He has chosen to reveal it to us, and He's done that in two ways, general and special, or natural revelation and supernatural revelation. So there's a bunch of things we can know about God because of, uh, because of creation, because, because we look at the stars of the sky, because he's written some things on our heart. There's general information that is available to everybody. There are things that you can tell about the creator by looking at creation. That's general revelation of God. There's also special revelation of God. There's beyond natural or supernatural information that has been revealed. 
The principal way that God has revealed himself to us is through his son, Jesus Christ. So in the beginning of Hebrews, they say, you know, the son is the exact representation of, of the father. He's the radiance of God's glory, right? He's, he, if you want to know what God the father looks like, you look at God the son. Additionally, we have the word of God. So we have this, this, this book that is God's communication to us. It's special information supernaturally delivered to us, okay? We could also talk about this book uh, as being a story, okay? So it's the story of the Jews, uh, pretty much from uh, page 12, from Genesis 12 all the way through the book of Acts, uh, middle of the book of Acts. It's a Jewish story, and so it's the story of the Jews. But we could then additionally, and for our purposes today in light of the Alpha and Omega, I want to say that, that the Bible is the story of God's efforts to rescue and redeem us. So that's the, that's the way I want to phrase this as we think about uh, the Alpha and the Omega and, and that and the Jesus is the beginning and the end. And in order to appreciate how Jesus is the beginning and the end, we have to understand just a little bit about the structure of the Bible. So uh, um, as you know, it, it, there's likely know there's two sections. There's the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and there's the New Testament. So the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Bible, 39 books that uh, further divide into three categories. There's the law, uh, so the, this is sometimes called the Torah, this is the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So there's those books. Then there's additionally, uh, there, there are the prophets. This makes up most of the Old Testament. And the prophets divide in a couple different ways, major and minor, depending upon how long they are, what, what time they prophesied, who they were prophesying to. But, but there's a bunch of prophets. And then there's the, the writings or the wisdom literature, which was principally written by David and, and his son Solomon. Uh, so it's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, also the book of Job. So there's these other books that are in there. So we have, um, we have the Old Covenant. We also have the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the New Testament is 27 books that were written about Jesus. So they open with four Gospels, which are biographies, sort of, not really, because they do a bad job of telling us much about Jesus. They're really short, and they really focus on the end of his life. So they really focus on the last week of his life because they're a big arrow pointing at the fact that Jesus died in our place and trying to pull everything together. So we got four biographies, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we've got the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells us the rest of the sort of the chronology of, of things in the first century. It gives us the first 30 years after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. It tells us how the story of his followers sort of spread uh, like a raging fire that goes in every direction. All these people saying, he is the one he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He rose from the dead. Here's how it all fits together. So then additionally, the New Testament has got a bunch of letters. These letters were written during the time 
of the book of Acts. The book of Acts goes again for 30 years, right up until about 70 AD. So most of the letters fit in that time frame. Not all of them, but they were written by Paul and, and James and John and Peter. And uh, they're letters to churches, many of them. So uh, Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are all letters written to churches. And then there's some letters written to people like Timothy, First and Second Timothy, Titus. There's some of these. There's these letters. So we have these two sections of the Bible. Now, there's other ways that people will divide the Bible. Some divide it according to covenants. So they look at the the different sort of agreements that God has with us formed through various people. So Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. So there's these different arrangements, the different agreements. So you can look at the covenants. You can look at topics. You can look at names of God. You can, there's, there's a lifetime of study in the Bible. It can be divided up in a, in a variety of different ways. For our purposes, again, I want you to see this structure as something that, um, that is crafted in large part to help us see God's unfolding efforts to rescue and redeem us. And this is where I go to the whiteboard. I have talked about this in the past. Um, so I'm going to move relatively quickly. But uh, when I talk about the Bible and its structure, I generally suggest you think of it as a play that you're going to go see. Right? And it's a play that has two acts. Act 1 is the Old Covenant. Act 2 is the New Covenant. There's a 400-year intermission in between. So plenty of time to get up, get something to eat, go to the bathroom. But there's this intermission. Now, um, as with any good story, um, what, you, what you are initially looking at is what, what's the tension that needs to be resolved? Why would I keep reading this? Why would I go to this play? What am I waiting to see happen? Okay? So there's always, it's usually good, then something bad happens, and then you read the rest of the story to figure out, does it get resolved? How does it get resolved? So when you go to a play, sometimes at the very beginning, early on, something bad happens. I want to suggest that if you were going to see the Bible as a play, you would be told that something had hap- bad had happened. Okay, because Genesis 1 through 11 is sort of, a, it's sort of a, the introduction. And, and I think that you would read about this in the little playbill that you're given when you walk in. You know, who's playing the part of Moses is this. And, the, you know, so-and-so, the understudy is stepping in for Abraham. And, you, you know, you, you look at that. And there's always a little paragraph or two that says, this is where the play starts. Okay, this is what's happened before the, the curtain goes up on Act 1, Scene 1. So what, what we would get there at that point is we would be told that uh, an all-powerful, loving, holy, good God has created a world, spoke it into existence. And, and it was good and it was wonderful and it's sort of the crescendo of his creative activity. He has created people, humankind, male and female in his image, and invested them with authority over this creation. And all is good until it's not. There is a rebellion. There is an insurrection. And the result of the insurrection is that, is that humanity has been cut off from God. As a matter of fact, humanity has been cursed by God. 
And so uh, we read about this in Genesis chapter 3. And it's bad news, right? Multiply to women, he says, multiply your pain in childbirth. To men, he says, you're going to struggle. You're going to work hard. You're going to sweat and toil uh, because the ground is going to be difficult giving up food. You're, you're going to work hard. Your work is cursed. So this happens early on. The, the good news is there is a promise that is given in Genesis 3. God gives this curse, but in the context of giving the curse, he says... One day I will send someone who is going to fix this. One day I am going to send someone who is going to make things right, who's going to defeat evil. Literally, it says, uh, he's, he's, he's speaking to evil himself, evil personified, and he says, you're going to strike his heel, he's going to crush your head. Okay? So that's, that's what we're told in Genesis 3. And then the rest of Genesis 4 through 11, just basically there's Cain kills Abel and there's a flood and everything's bad and every, everything's bad. That's what, that's what you get 4 through 11. It's just bad. It's really bad. Nothing's working. Okay, so now you begin. The curtain goes up, Old Testament, Act 1. And you have eight scenes in Act 1. The first scene is the patriarchs. So we see, when the curtain goes up, we see this man, uh, a shepherd, a semi-nomadic shepherd, wandering around the Fertile Crescent. We don't know anything about him, but God speaks to him and he says, Abram, here's a deal. If you will follow me, if you will honor me, if you will serve me, if you will, if you will allow me to be God, then I will bless the entire world through your descendants. Okay? And we think, okay, here it is. There's going to be a child born to Abraham who's going to be this one who's going to defeat evil. Now, there's a lot of drama that happens in Act 1, Scene 1, because Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are, are old. They don't have any children, and so there's concern that uh, you know, they can't have kids. And so they, they try and adopt somebody, and then Abraham sleeps with, uh, with, his, with Sarah's sort of um, assistant. That doesn't work out. Uh, finally... Uh, Sarah, though she's very old, finally Sarah conceives and she gives birth to a son, Isaac. But to everybody's surprise, okay, Isaac is not the promised child. Right? He, is the, he is their son, he is the son they love, but he's not the one that God promised. Nor, is, nor are either of Isaac's sons. He has two, two boys, Jacob and Esau. Nor are any of Jacob's sons. Jacob has 12 sons. And uh, these 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And during Act 1, Scene 1, we watch as Abraham is called by God, then, then as he begins to grow in numbers and wealth, and he becomes, his family becomes not just a family, but a big family, and then a tr- big tribe, and then a small nation. And, and everything is going well for Abraham and his descendants. There's a famine in the land, but they go to Egypt, and, and they're fine there. And when Act 1, Scene 1 ends, everything is going fine. Then we go to Scene 2, which is Exodus. And, um, and in Exodus, it opens by telling us that things have gone south. Okay? So a Pharaoh arose that knew not, that knew not Joseph... They, they were going well at the end of, of scene one. Now they're in slavery. And they're frustrated and they're crying out to God. Eventually God sends 
Moses. He calls up Moses and sends Moses to lead the Jews back out of Egypt and and to lead them towards the promised land. Now, a lot of drama here. There's 10 plagues. There's all kinds of things going on. Parting, they gotta, they got to make a, a, an escape through uh, the, the Red Sea. And so there's drama. But we come away in scene two, beginning to understand how much God is willing to do to keep these people alive. Right? They are the promised bloodline. He's got to keep them alive because it's through them that he's going to give the blessing to the entire world. We also learn some things about God because God reveals his name to God. There's all kinds of titles for God. We got them here in banners around the balcony. But but God has one name. He has lots of titles, but he has one name, and he reveals his name to Moses. I am uh, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And uh, so we also, we get the law in scene two. So at Mount Sinai, after they go through the Red Sea, they go to the mountain, and, and God takes this nation, probably two million slaves, and, and he gives them a law. And this law reveals how life works, and it reveals some things about God's character, and it also is in place because he needs them to function as a healthy society so they're going to survive long enough, again, to provide this Messiah. So, then, um, scene three, we have the conquest. Uh, so they wander around. They don't, they don't do what they're supposed to do. They don't go into the promised land as God directs them. And so for 40 years, they wander around in the desert. And then uh, Moses dies, and Joshua, his understudy, steps up. Joshua leads them across the River Jordan. They go into the promised land. Uh, then we have scene four, uh, which is Judges and and Judges is, uh, it's this weird little period where they've taken over the promised land, but they're not, they haven't taken all of it. And there's, there's these 12 tribes that are living as sort of a, just a loose affiliation. Every so often they come together to fight a common enemy. The Judges would unite them. They were not legal people, they were military leaders, and, and occasionally they would pull people together. And the refrain in the book of Judges, though, is that everyone does what's right in his own eyes. They're not following God. They're not, they're not a particularly uh, exemplary group of people. And we suddenly find ourselves going, well, wait a minute. Where's this promised one, right? I mean, how long are we going to go on here? This, this is, you know, why are, we, why are we reading this story? There's drama and intrigue, but we don't seem to be any closer to anything. So then we have uh, scene five, which uh, is the United Kingdom. So the Jews uh, announced to God through their prophet Nathan that they want a king. And Nathan says, you have a king, your king is God. They go, no, we want a king we can see. And uh, Nathan says, no, you don't. A king is going to tax you. He's going to recruit your young men to be in the military. You don't want a king, trust me. They go, we want a king. And so God says, we're going to give them a king. He gives them exactly what they ask for. Tall, dark, and handsome, a guy named Saul. Uh, Saul uh, is a disaster. He's a failure. It doesn't work. Um, then David steps onto the scene. And under David, he pulls together everything. David does amazing things, right? He's a warrior. He's a statesman. He's a poet. He's a musician. He defeats Goliath. He does all these things, this charmed life. He, he unifies these 12 disparate tribes into a nation. He, he defeats their enemies. He pushes out their borders. He fills their treasury. 
he does virtually everything. Now, he's a deeply flawed guy, and towards the end of his life, uh, this becomes more obvious. Uh, he gets in, gets in trouble because of uh, sleeping with a woman that's not his wife, and this leads him to have to have somebody killed, and bad things happen. And if David were alive today, clearly his family would have a reality TV show and it would be more scandalous than the Kardashians because it's just bizarre things happen. But David pulls it together. Uh, he, he hands over to his son Solomon a kingdom that's, got, that's, that's big on the outside and it starts now to look like, yes, we are God's people. <laughs> the plan is going to come together. Right? And Solomon uses the money that David has set aside to build this big temple. And, and Solomon, everything seems to be going well, except it's actually crumbling on the inside. And when Solomon dies, we, we move into what's called the divided kingdom. And the, the 12 tribes split. And we have the, the northern 10 tribes, which retain the name Israel. And uh, then we have the southern two tribes, which it goes by the name of Judah. Judah has Jerusalem. Judah has the temple. Judah has what's necessary for the people to follow God. The northern ten tribes, the leaders here, do not want the people going to Jerusalem. Um, so they build other altars, and things begun, begin to unravel. Um, th- this is where the prophets... Um, this is where Elisha and Elijah are going to factor in. This is where Amos and uh, Hosea and Joel. These are prophets that are going to be saying to, to, to Israel at this point, you've got to get back to God or it's going to be over for you quickly. They don't listen. And in 722 BC, they are captured by the Assyrians. And we don't hear from them again except occasionally the National Enquirer announces that they've been found in some airport terminal, wandering around, whatever. Uh, but, but there's ten lost tribes of Israel. Uh, there are two southern tribes. They have some good kings and some bad kings. They have a different set of prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Obadiah and Micah are going to be talking to them. They, they sort of run spiritually hot and cold. Eventually, what happens to them is they go into exile in 586 B.C. So they last longer than, uh, than the northern ten tribes. But in 586, they're captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they're taken into captivity back in Babylon. Uh, so they're going to spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon. This is where the books of uh, Ezekiel and Daniel uh, are going are to factor in. And, uh, and during those 70 years, the prophets will continue to speak to the people. And he will continue to promise them that this, this person is coming. Right? He has not forgotten what he, is, what he said he was going to do. And this person is going, is going to show up. So there's 70 years in exile, and then, um, then they return. 
And so um, they're, they're going to pick it up here, and they're going to return to Jerusalem. And this is where the books of ne- uh, Nehemiah and Malachi, Zechariah are going to factor in here. They're going to they're begin to rebuild Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah does, rebuilds the wall. And eventually, they're going to rebuild the temple. So when Nebuchadnezzar captured them in 586, he decimates Jerusalem, and he takes everything of any value out of the temple, and the temple is destroyed. So this is the temple where the sacrifices are going on. This is, this is the thing that makes, that makes the Jews the Jews. This is the intersection of God and man on earth, this is, and it's destroyed. So they go back, and eventually they rebuild the temple. But it's, a, it's just a pittance. It's a, it's a little tree fort. It's nothing like what Solomon had built. Okay? And then uh, it's over. Okay, the Old Testament ends. The curtain falls on Act 1. And uh, we go into the intermission, which is 400 years of radio silence from heaven. No prophets speak. Okay? So politically some things happen. Uh, Alexander the Great conquers the world, makes everybody learn Greek, which will be a benefit in God's unfolding plan because when, when, uh, when Christ comes on the scene, everybody will be able to talk to everybody and the message will really spread quickly. But, and, and the Jews get some freedom, they fight. This is the whole Maccabean uh, thing that will lead to, um, that will lead to Hanukkah. And there's, then they're going, to, they're going to be captured again. They're going to lose their independence in about 60 B.C. So we're getting close to Christ. By the Romans, the Romans are going to take over. The, the Roman Empire is now spreading into this area. And, and the Jews will divide given their response to the Romans. Right, So the Sadducees will say, let's partner with the Romans. The Pharisees will say, let's be holy and ignore the Romans. The Essenes say, let's run out into the desert and just completely uh, try and live independent of the Romans. And the Zealots will say, let's fight and overthrow the Romans. So that's what's going on. 400 years of radio silence. There's an intermission. And then we pick up with Act 2. And Act 2 opens... Remember when Zechariah hears from the angel. This is how the, our study of the Gospel of Luke began. The angel Gabriel finally uh, appears to uh, breaks the silence. And he says to Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth, although she's old, she's going to give birth to a son. And this son will be Elijah. Because the last promise, the last word of a prophet, Malachi, at the very end here during this time of return, he said, the next thing to happen will be Elijah will return. So then Zechariah hears from the angel Gabriel and he says, your son is going to be born. Your wife is going to give birth to a son and his name is going to be John the Baptist and he's going to take the place of Elijah and he's going to announce that everything is happening. The one that God promised to send, he's about to send. Prepare. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then we have the birth of Jesus. The incarnation, Christmas, right? Angels, wise men, star, all of that. That's, that's what happens there. And then we skip ahead uh, basically to when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes out into the wilderness for 40 years. And then he begins his public ministry, again, with the big focus being on. Uh, the focus uh, of the Gospels is really on the last week of Christ's life. And it's, it's on his death and his resurrection, so then we got the book of Acts, and then, and then we, there's also the book of Revelation that talks about the future. But you know much of this, some of this, the stories may not have been put together. 
Here's what I want you to see in light of this alpha and omega. There is a sense in, in which everything is pointing here. <laughs> and, and everything is pointing to Jesus. And in, in particular, everything is pointing to Christ's death and resurrection. And in Act 1, right, there are a number of different ways that we are reminded of Jesus. So there are three things that, that you, you've got to be reading with your eyes open for. The first are prophecies. So there are, there are a number of prophecies that are made by the prophets that are stated here. Because the prophets are some of the... All this period, the, pro, the, the prophets continue to speak to the people for God. And these promises about a Messiah continue to get restated and restated and restated. Now, one of the purposes of prophecies is to confirm the messenger. So there's a number of prophecies that happen in the Old Testament that are not about the Messiah. There's just a prophet, and the way I can prove that I'm a prophet is I make a prediction of something that's going to happen, and then it happens. (laughs) So it's like, look, I'm not speaking for myself, I'm speaking for God. Here's proof. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, and then it happens. So there's a category of these prophecies that are given about the Messiah. The first one comes all the way back here, right? Genesis 3, that's the one that we've been looking at. That's, that's the promise that drives this whole thing. How is this going to get resolved? But the prophecy that is made in Genesis 3 is the way this gets stated. God says uh, to, to evil, right? The seed of woman is going to crush your head. And the, the Hebrew construction there is really weird because the word is sperm. So the sperm of woman is going to crush your head. You go, whoa, what, this is, uh, we're failing biology 101. Okay, until, and this is the way it is generally with prophecies. It, it, it's not like you get them going forward. You just get them once they've been confirmed. Once the virgin birth comes along, you go, oh, now I get it. The sperm of woman, the seed of woman. So we've got, we've got this prophecy here, and then there's a number of prophecies. If you were at Lessons and Carols last night, you heard Anson say that, you know, there's by some counts 300 plus prophecies about the Messiah. So they happen in a variety of contexts. Some of them are, are Christmas prophecies, right? So Micah 5, right? This is unto you, Bethlehem, right? Though you are the least, because Bethlehem's a know-nothing village. Nobody wanted to be from Bethlehem, though you were least. You will give birth to a king who is from ancient of days, right? And then uh, we've also got the Isaiah uh, passage, uh, Isaiah 7, about a virgin will be born. Uh, the virgin will give birth, right? And some people say, oh, virgin in the Old Testament, it just means young woman. No, it doesn't. It can mean that once. One time it means that. The majority of cases it doesn't mean that. And that would hardly be a prophecy. Here's how you know God's finally going to do something. A, a, a young woman will have a child. Okay, well, that doesn't, <laughs> young women have children all the time, right? How would that be special, right? No, so the virgin will conceive. And so there, there, are these, um, there, there are these prophecies. There are other kinds of prophecies other than Christmas prophecies about the Messiah. Isaiah 53 describes his death by crucifixion, hundreds of years before anybody's being crucified. Right? So we have these prophecies being made that help us understand who the Messiah is and what he's going to look like. 
A second thing that is happening up here is we have what's called theophanies. Uh, so theos is the Greek word for God. Phaneo uh, means appear. We have appearances of God. And in particular, we have some what we call Christophanies. So the Christophanies are appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, in his pre-incarnate state. Right? So the claim here, and, and the word, that, the, the, the description that's used in the Old Testament is angel of the Lord. So an angel of the Lord will appear, for instance, to Hagar. Uh, she's the, the maidservant of Sarah, and she gets pregnant by Abraham, and then Sarah decides she doesn't like because she drives Hagar out of the camp. Hagar's out in the desert. She thinks she's going to die, and an angel of the Lord appears. Well, later, the angel of the Lord will accept worship, which other angels will not do, right? And it's the angel of Yahweh is the way this gets phrased. So we say, okay, this appears to be Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. The angel of the Lord will appear to Abraham and Sarah, along with a couple other uh, angels, and will say, you're going to give birth to a son. Uh, The angel of the Lord will wrestle with Jacob in Genesis 32, right? The angel of the Lord will appear to Joshua in Joshua 5. There are these these times, there are these moments when Jesus makes uh, an appearance uh, in his pre-incarnate state. So we have... We have prophecies pointing to Jesus. We have theophanies pointing to Jesus. And then, additionally, we just have, we just have these foreshadowing events and activities that point to Jesus. Right? So there's just these, there are these things that just get our attention. For instance, the sacrifices. Right? I mean, the, the whole sacrificial system is pointing ahead to Jesus. An innocent third party needs to die so the guilty people can go free. Well, who does that make me think of? Right? That's pointing ahead to Jesus. The whole Abraham and Isaac event, right? Which is so, so crazy when we're reading this. So Abraham says, I'm going to follow you, I'm in. And, and he waits forever for this son to be born. And then after the son is born, one of the things that God says to him is, are going to go kill him? Right? Take your son, your only son, the son you love, go to this mountain three days away, tie him up, and kill him. And you think, what kind of monster is this God? Why would, why would Abraham sign up to follow this God? This God is cruel. But then, we, interestingly, we have a theophany. We have a Christophany. The angel of the Lord stops Abraham from killing Isaac. Right? And this, this event does not make sense until thousands of years later when in that very same spot, because Abraham had to travel to that mountain, thousands of years later at that very same spot, God the Father has God the Son on the altar. And we realize, oh my goodness, this whole thing was a setup to, to get my attention to say, what, what is required of a father to kill a son? That's unthinkable. How could a father ever do that? And then we realize, no, 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 that's what God the Father has done for me. Right? So we have, these, the, we have these theophanies. In the book of Ruth, we have the kinsman redeemer. Right? Ruth has to be redeemed by someone who's related to her. And that points to Jesus. He's got to come as a man. We got the Passover lamb, right? Jesus is the Passover lamb. When John the Baptist sees him, he says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the sacrifices of the Passover take a, a, a young lamb, an unblemished, perfect male lamb, and sacrifice it. That's just pointing ahead to Jesus. The whole nation of Israel in one sense. It's under a cruel king. And then it, it, it's going to escape through the water. It goes through the Red Sea. 
right? And then it's going to wander in the desert for 40 years. Well, that's just, that's Jesus, right? He's born under a cruel king, Herod. And then he's going to be baptized, and then he's going to go out in the very same desert for 40 days, right? And we've just we've got all these foreshadowing events. They keep reminding us as we're reading this of what's happening here. All the arrows point forward to Jesus, and in particular, they point to his death and resurrection. So what I want you to know is that there is a plan, very costly to God, but he paid the cost because he loves you. Uh, And God, as we read this, we come away realizing God is not in a hurry, right? It takes a long time for this thing to unfold. God is clearly not in a hurry, but he keeps his promises. And we can be certain that even when it looks, as it so often does through all of this, like it's not going to work out, right? Clearly God has forgotten his promises. Clearly there was a left turn. Clearly something has gone awry. No, it's all under control. God has a plan. And Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He shows up back here in Genesis 3. He shows up in Genesis 1 in the plural pronouns that are used to describe God. And then he shows up in the very last chapter of of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. uh, Jesus, this is in the epilogue. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray that, uh, that the takeaway on this big overview would be that you have a plan, you have it under control, you are a loving God, you are going to affect your promises, you're going to keep them, and we can trust you, even when it looks dark, even when things seem to be going awry, that uh, you will bring all things together. Help us um, move forward with that promise. And Jesus, we recognize in a new way that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and uh, everything in between. And all roads point to you. Help us... um, Love, serve, follow you, honor you. Uh, Thank you for coming as you did uh, as a child and living and loving and serving and dying in our place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.